You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. As we continue our Epiphany series, All in the Family, these are some pretty interesting texts. This text about Jonah and his trip to Nineveh and this Jesus kind of calling of his disciples. And it might cause us to wonder, like, what does this have to do with Epiphany? And in what way is this revealing or is this a manifestation of who God is or who God is in Christ? Well, something happens as God is being revealed, as light is being shined. Not only do we see God, but we see ourselves and others in the light of God. And that kind of changes things. So we've titled today's uh, sermon, Fish and Ships. Yeah, not Fish and Chips, which I also love. That's a different sermon. But Fish and Ships. So uh, some of you know, we, uh, Angela and I used to live in England. And when we did, we were young and I was a student. Uh, we had only one child at that time, not six. And we, we were living kind of on a student income, which meant we didn't have a lot of money. Um, we would typically only eat meat once a week, and uh, our typical meat once a week was fish. So on Friday, on my way home from the university, I'd stop by the fish and chips, fish and, I'm going to say it wrong now, fish and chips place on my way home. I'd buy one piece of haddock, a side of fries, some mushy peas, which I know doesn't sound very good, and that's because it's not. <laughs> Not the, it's not the best side I've ever had, but that's what we would have. And the three of us would eat from that one meal, and it was the best of times. If I could, I would go back there today. Like, it was such a wonderful time in our life. The smell of the salt and the smell of the vinegar and the taste of that kind of deep-fried batter on the haddock, I mean, it was really good. The Brits, they know their fish and chips. But this is not about fish and chips. It's about fish and ships, Right? And the story starts with Jonah. It's the Old Testament passage of the day. And there was one particular phrase in that passage that Caleb read for us that is just remarkable. It was that point where it said, once the people of Nineveh had repented, that God changed his mind. God changed his mind? Does God change his mind? I mean, how could the all-knowing omnipotent, omnipresent God ever change his mind or have need of changing his mind? I mean, who wrote Jonah anyway? And who said that got to be in the Bible? And wasn't there an editor somewhere along the way who could have helped them out and say, don't say stuff like that? Because if you say stuff like that, either people are going to completely ignore it or they'll have no idea what to do with it. So I think for most of us, we just hear it and we ignore it. Well, that can't be true. Or somehow it must mean something else. But that somehow God is so relational and kind of wanting to be with us that God is actually responding to how we behave. And the repentance of the Ninevites is kind of unexpected in the story, perhaps. I mean, I don't know if you know much about Nineveh. The, the city of Nineveh still exists. It's in modern-day Iraq. And it was the capital at the time of, of, of the ancient world of a kingdom called Assyria. And the Assyrians were notorious 
they were large, they were powerful, they had most of the money, and they had the strongest economy, and they had the strongest military. And so their culture was dominating that section of the world. And one of the things they were known for, actually, was kind of taking over other countries, which they did. The northern kingdom, like Israel, you'll remember, was divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. It was the Assyrians that destroyed the northern kingdom and took them into captivity. And so they were known for having everything and kind of everyone, right? They'd take a lot of people into captivity. They had a lot of slaves. Which is why when Jonah was called to prophesy there, he's like, I don't want to do that. If I, if I go and prophesy there, they might listen to me. If they listen to me, they might repent. If they repent, God might forgive them. And we all know we don't want God to forgive the Ninevites. We want God to judge the Ninevites. So you know that part of the story, right? Instead of going north towards Nineveh, Jonah goes south and gets on a ship and goes out into the Mediterranean. So there's a ship for you. And we know that story. So Jonah's out on the ship and the storm comes and the, the, the sailors on the ship are kind of overcome. It was like the worst storm. And they're trying to figure out, you know, who didn't pray correctly to the sea god? Like, was it you? Was it you? Whose fault is it? And Jonah's there. He's kind of laissez-faire. He knows what's going on. He's like, well... It's my God. He called me to go elsewhere. I wasn't supposed to go. I was supposed to go there. I wasn't supposed to be here. And they're all, they're praying, these pagans who worship these other gods. They're, they're passionate. And Jonah's just like. So they throw Jonah overboard. That's chapter one. In chapter 2, you know the story. He's kind of swallowed by a fish. There's Jonah in the belly of a fish. You think at that time Jonah could get passionate, like, Lord, help me, like some kind of distress, like calling out. Like even people who don't believe in God seem to call out God in the midst of distress, right? We say things like, you know, Lord, help me. We get a horrible diagnosis. We find out something's beyond our control. We kind of call out to God. So there's Jonah, he's in the belly of the well, and what Jonah chapter 2, the story of him in, in the fish, what he, this, the story tells us is a prayer of Jonah. It is the most passionless prayer in all of scripture. Did any of you uh, grow up kind of going to like high school football games? You know, like I grew up in the South, high school football games, there would always be someone who prayed before the football game, and it was always the same prayer, like... You know, God help both sides and nobody get hurt. Amen. It was like nothing. Right? It was awful. That's Jonah's prayer. He's like, well, I'm in a fish and you are God. And I hope things work out. Like, if he was in seminary, his prayer would have gotten an F. At the end of chapter 2, this are still passionless Jonah. God, actually, if you pay very close attention, God doesn't respond to Jonah's prayer. I mean, not directly anyway. He doesn't speak to Jonah. He speaks to the fish, and the fish vomits Jonah. So do you want to know what I think God said to the fish, having heard Jonah's prayer? It's a visual. Watch. 
And the fish is like, yeah, right. <laughs> right? The fish vomits Jonah because God's like, man, these prayers make me sick. They, they, there's nothing to them. They're like, there's no, there's no passion. There's no effect. There's no right, true intention. So finally Jonah gets to, this is chapter 3, he gets to Nineveh. This is the part that Caleb read for us. And he preaches that the Ninevites need to repent. And, and this is key, I think. All my life, because I grew up, you know, as Pentecostal. All my life, I heard about repentance. But I think repentance, we, we misunderstood it on at least two accounts. One, we often confused it with confession. Like we talk about repentance and then we confess our sins. Confession is saying I did wrong. Repentance is turning, right? That's, those are two different things. They might be adjacent. They might be related, corollaries to one another, but they're not one and the same. Confession is to say what you is, did wrong, and repentance is to turn. Now, there's a second piece that I think we often missed. When we did get it right about repentance as turning, we often thought about it not as turning towards something, but away from something. Our repentance was always turning away from our sin. And the most popular ones were smoking and drinking. Like, right? Those were the two sins in particular that I was not supposed to do. And I guess have sex. That was the third one. So you weren't supposed to do those things, so you're going to turn away from them. And certainly that is part of it. But turning away from it is not the primary point. It's not so much what you're turning away from as it is what are you turning towards. You're turning away, actually, from yourself and you're turning towards God. Like, that's the whole point. We're not going to have it our way. We're, we're letting that go. But it's not just the letting go of our way that is salvific. What's salvific is turning towards God. And that is repentance. Like sometimes I would hear people talk about repentance and they would say it's like doing a 360, which of course is exactly wrong. Because if I'm facing this way and I do a 360, I'm still facing this way. <laughs> At the very least, it was supposed to be a 180, right? You're supposed to go the other direction. And that's exactly what the Ninevites do. Not only are they turning away from their way of being, but they are turning towards the God of Jonah. And God sees it and he's moved by it. And the text says he changes his mind. He's not going to bring the calamity he, has, he would have brought had they not repented. So now we see two groups of people filled with passion. The sailors out on the Mediterranean and the Ninevites in Nineveh. And we see a Hebrew prophet, Jonah, who as to this point has yet to express anything that we might emotionally associate with passion. Until we get to the fourth and final chapter. Now Jonah has camped out outside of the city of Nineveh and he's up on a hill and he's waiting to see God kind of judge the city. He wants to see it burn. And there's a plant that grows there. And it's given Jonah a certain amount of shade. Jonah likes the plant. 
And then the sun comes out and it bakes the plant and it withers. And finally, finally Jonah wakes up emotionally. Finally, he's actually present with God, not kind of concealed or hidden from him. And he, he lets God have it. What kind of God do you think you are? Look at this poor plant. Who would let this plant die? What was wrong with this plant? And God's like, so Jonah, you're pretty mad about that plant, aren't you, son? Except, you know, Jonah's not really mad about the plant. What is Jonah mad about? Jonah's mad that Nineveh has been forgiven. Jonah's mad that their repentance has brought about a change in God's mind. Jonah's mad that Nineveh is not going to be judged and burnt to the ground. Except he doesn't actually tell God that. What he tells God is, man, I'm upset at you about this plant. This is, this is in psychology, this is kind of a classic example of misplaced aggression. Right? You get frustrated with your boss at work or... You know, the job's not going right, so you come home and you kind of kick your dog and you yell at your kids. I mean, hopefully you don't kick your dog and yell at your kids, but you know what I'm talking about. The people in your life that aren't a threat to you get the brunt of your aggression because you can't be uh, visibly upset at your boss or colleagues, but you can kind of at the house. So this is Jonah letting it out on God about a plant which is not his real emotional struggle. And like a good therapist, God constantly questions Jonah. He's like, have you even looked at Nineveh? Look at, look at everything they have. Look, look how wealthy they are. Well, he knows Nineveh. He knows they're wealthy. How did they get wealthy? From taking over other countries like Israel. And he's like, Look at all the people they have. 200,000 that don't know their right from left. Well, who doesn't know their right from their left? Children. And how can any place have so many children? Because not only do they have their own children, they have the children of all those other places that they've conquered. It's a human resource, right? They would take them back. They'd raise them as Ninevites. So Jonah's just getting more and more angry inside, like, yeah, they got all the money. They got all of our kids, too. And then the book of Jonah ends with a question, which is really bizarre. Sometimes translators will try and rewrite it so it doesn't sound like a question, because who thinks that anything ought to end in a question? But there are only two biblical books. They're both in the Old Testament, end with a question, Jonah and Lamentations. And they both kind of deal with this kind of destruction of, of this kind of power and abuse. Uh, one for Babylon, that's limitations, and the other with Assyria, and that's Jonah. And the book of Jonah ends with this question, and what about all the cows? <laughs> I know, it's funny. You're supposed to laugh, right? It's, intend, it's intended to generate our own kind of emotions. And that this is God talking to Jonah. Look at, look at what a great city this is. Who would want this city to die? Look at all the money they have. Look at all the children they have. Look at all the cows. I mean, one way to read that is that, you know, God's an animal lover, you know, and he wants us to all be vegetarian. Um, 
Another way to read that is he continues to kind of almost poke uh, Jonah, to, to question him, to interrogate him. Like, tell me the truth. What are you really upset about? And, and the book of Jonah never answers the question. But I think as readers of the text, we're supposed to know what he's really upset about is that he didn't want God to forgive them. Now, this, this is where we have a real epiphany. We realize who God is in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we see that God is a forgiver. And we're delighted by the fact that God might forgive us. And we're disgusted by the fact that God might forgive others. Especially others who we think have done wrong to us and ours. And this is something we need deliverance from. If we're going to repent, we're not just going to turn away from those things we do wrong. If we're going to repent, we're going to turn towards God. And when we turn towards God, we'll realize who our God is and how we are now to be. And at the very heart of who our God is, God is love. And in God's love, God is ready and willing and waiting to forgive. It's what God does. And so as we forgive others, we realize that we are now behaving like our Father. There is only one requirement that is placed on God's forgiveness. And interestingly enough, it is neither confession nor repentance. Like you might have thought, in order for God to forgive, you have to say, I did wrong. And in order for God to forgive, you have to turn away from your wrongdoing. But neither one of those are listed in Scripture as the one and only requirement for God's forgiveness. It's not in the passage of Mark we read. It comes later, but it says this. When you ask, meaning when you ask for forgiveness, God will forgive when you forgive those who have done wrong to you. That's the requirement. God wants us to be forgivers. And when we become forgivers, you realize that we're simply becoming like God. And our repentance is being realized, meaning, meaning made real, in the fact that we are turning toward God. Again, in my childhood, so often people would ask us what we would believe. Well, what does your church believe? Well, again, we don't smoke and we don't drink and we don't chew and we don't go out with girls who do. <laughs> That's what we said. I didn't make that up. That's, I was actually taught that. But do, do you hear what's wrong with that? If you were asked, what do you believe? And you answered what you didn't do. You didn't actually answer with what you did believe. And there is a long history of this. Like sometimes in the, in the Middle Ages, they thought God was too other, too pristine to actually talk about who God was. And so they would talk about what God was not, right? It's called the via negativa, the negative way. So it's not as though that has no space in our kind of belief system. But at some point, if we're going to know who we are, if we're going to have an epiphany, not just of who God is, but who we are, we're going to realize that it's not just what we're not, 
It is who we are. And who we are is like God. And who God is like is a forgiver. And this is all in the family. And, and trust me, I, sometimes forgiving those close to us is the hardest. Because we kind of expect so much out of our family. They're the ones closest to us. And that's why when they do wrong, that's why it hurts so much. Right? We're not as hurt by someone who does us wrong by a stranger because we don't have any expectation there. But in the family, well, that's a little different. And that's why forgiveness can't just be um, a generic phenomenon. It has to be embodied. It has to be enfleshed. It has to be kind of practiced. It, It starts at home. In fact, we might even narrow it down even more so and say like it starts in the heart. Jesus calls his disciples. This is the second passage that Caleb read. And it's amazing the way the story, particularly Mark, uh, recounts it. It's as though uh, it was just immediate, right? Like Jesus says, come and follow me. And they just kind of dropped their nets and off they went, right? Surely there was more to the story that Mark just doesn't tell us, right? They said bye or something, you know. There was some kind of way in which that got processed, But I think, again, a key thing, they're leaving their boats, their ships, and they're embarking on a new journey, a journey of someone who will not just kind of catch fish, like the big fish in Jonah's story, or the little fish that they were catching in Galilee, but will catch people, and not catch people for the purpose of eating them or selling them, right, but of saving them of restoring them. And this, this, is, this is now the, the vocation that we are all called into. It's like, not only is this a family, right? It's all in the family, but we are all in the family business. And the family business is saving the lost. And our God is great at that. And we are called to participate in it so that we become the eyes and the ears and the hands and the feet of the body of Christ. So how does God's forgiveness get meted out in the world? It's when God's people live in the world and they forgive others. And it's how does God's grace and God's mercy and God's love and God's justice get appropriated into the world? It's when the body of Christ lives in the world and lives in those ways, spreading that love, that joy, that peace, that kindness, that uh, mercy, that forgiveness, and that justice. And when we do that, we are living like our Father. We have turned away from our own kind of self-centered, egotistical way of being in the world. And we have turned towards God and seen in him, in particularly in Christ, the example of how to live. We call ourselves Christians. To be a Christian is to be like Christ. We are disciples of Christ. We are students of Christ, meaning that our lives should look like his life. 
It's what he called his disciples to. And it's what we believe we too have been called. That this, we're not just reading a, a history story. We're reading a sacred text that we believe speaks to us. So may we hear that calling in this season of Epiphany. And may we not forsake the family business. And may we be actors in this kind of forgiveness. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.